Soldiers, you are naked and starving. The government owes you much but can give you nothing. Among these rocks, your patience, your courage are admirable, but not one ray of glory can shine down on you. I will lead you into the most fertile plain of the earth. Wealthy cities, great provinces will be in your power, and there await your honor, glory, and riches. Soldiers of Italy, will your courage, will your constancy fail? Napoleon in Italy. Welcome back to the Napoleon Show, episode five. Welcome, David. Well, I'm very pleased to be here again, as always. Uh, I have just now discovered the real drawback to letting you go first, however, because I was prepared to read that exact same speech myself. <laughs> well, you, you did it to me in the last episode when you read out Napoleon's letter to Napoleon. Josephine after their first night I, I had been all set up to read that very dramatically and you beat me so I thought I'm not going to give him a chance to do that this time but we have so well, many I, we have so many I, great speeches in this episode that I'll let you have all the rest how about that if, if I got to be the one that read the the passionate speech I guess I will I will accede you the right to read the inspirational speech now in this in this episode uh, as we said at the end of the last episode we have uh, Napoleon's just married Josephine one week later he uh, sets out... Actually, no, he, he gets given the command of the army of Italy. A week later, he marries Josephine. And then, like, it's only a matter of days, isn't it, before he heads off for the campaign? I think it was like two days. <laughs> that's that's a some short, honeymoon, a, isn't it? A, a very short honeymoon. But, you know, as you'll recall from the last episode, uh, Napoleon was bit by the dog, uh, Fortuné, and, you know, for all I know, he was glad to get out of town. <laughs> And, you know, a lot of criticism of Josephine for all of the affairs that she had or allegedly had when Napoleon was away. But, you know, this is a gay parry after all. And uh, he marries her and then two days later he heads off on a campaign that lasted for how long? Better part of a year, I think, the Italian campaign. Well, yes. And, and, and he made a what one, one could argue was a tactical error uh, right from the very beginning. He could have brought Josephine with him. He was the commanding general. He was always going to be staying in, in, in a nice headquarters. At the very least, he had the best tent. Uh, and, and when they were in towns, he would, you know, commandeer a nice place. So it would not have been completely inappropriate for him to have Josephine with him. If nothing else, you know, staying, you know, behind the lines somewhere. But in fact, he leaves Josephine in Paris, and 
while I think a lot of folks would would see that as a reasonable decision, I think if if Napoleon had it to do over again, he would have made a different decision. And he actually tried to get her to come and visit him on campaign quite often, but found it very difficult. In fact, as we'll discover as we go along, he even found it difficult to get her to reply to his letters, which he wrote often several times a day to her, being a completely obsessive character, as we know he was. Well, you've got you've got two things uh, there, Cameron. Now, first of all, clearly he is the passionate one. He's the one who writes these really hot letters, and I may have another one I can come up with somewhere along the line here. Uh, and and Josephine's actually a little embarrassed with these letters. She she occasionally reads them to you know Italian or one of her other friends, and they sort of giggle, I suppose. And 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 she didn't quite know what to think of all this. Uh, but of course, the other thing, and we'll, we'll I think we'll be more appropriate to talk about this a little bit later. But but she is, shall we say, otherwise occupied uh, and not necessarily anxious to go to Italy uh, because of that. Okay, so as we said, Napoleon's been given the command of the Army of Italy. Now, they haven't had a good couple of years, the Army of Italy. They've been fighting the Austrians and the Piedmontese through Italy, and they've pretty much, you know, they've been holding their own, but they haven't been making a lot of progress, and Napoleon has some plans for what they should be doing differently, and at 26 years of age, he rides off to take command of the force. Now, tell us a little bit about what he discovered when he arrived there. Well, first of all, let's let's explain to our our listening audience why he's going there to begin with, because it's very important to understand the the, the reason why there is what's known as the Army of France in Italy, and that's what he's commander of. Why is this thing there? Is this another expansionist uh, French uh, plot? Is this uh, the the first of Napoleon's many efforts to conquer the world? Uh, well. Hardly. Uh, and, and this is, I guess, point number one that I want to make in tonight's episode, and I believe we've made it before, and, and that is that the so-called Napoleonic Wars, of which I suppose this would be one, were not Napoleonic Wars necessarily at all, and they most certainly were not started by Napoleon uh, they were oftentimes in reaction to what was going on before. Uh, in this case, the actions that was going on in, in, in Italy, in northern Italy, as you say, the Piedmont uh, and, and other areas uh, with the Austrians there, if you look at the map, Austria is, is just to the, the, the northeast, uh, had to do with European reaction to the French Revolution. Uh, the French Revolution had ideas that greatly challenged the status quo of the Ancien Régime, the old regimes of, of Europe, and also it had actions that had greatly challenged them, uh, not the least of which, obviously, was the execution of uh, King Louis uh, XVI and his queen, his Austrian uh, princess queen, I hasten to add, uh, Marie Antoinette. And whether or not you think that the, the the king and queen should have been executed or not, the fact is that they were, and this and this outraged the the old regimes of Europe. Uh, many of the royalists of the day in France, of course, had fled lest they meet the same fate, and uh, many of the European nations decided that enough was enough. We need to get rid of this 
threat to our existence by eliminating the French Revolution and indeed trying to restore the Bourbon monarchy to the throne of France. And uh, uh, this this led the the, the nations of, of Europe, many of them, into direct military uh, action, usually uh, funded by and organized uh, by, by England uh, and so on. And Napoleon, as a young general, is simply being ordered to go and take command of an army that is that is fighting a, a, a an Austrian army that would like to put pressure on the eastern. Uh, border of France, uh, where, where France and, and, and what we know today as as Italy uh, uh, meet, and and of course the Austrian Emperor is uh, Francis II of Germany. He was the Holy Roman em- Emperor. Uh, later on, he, he becomes known as the Emperor Francis I of Austria when the Holy Roman Empire disappears under Napoleon. Uh, and, and this guy was an old stodge, to say the least, and he believed in the old social order, the old ways of doing things. And there was a, a personal grudge as well. As I said, uh, one of the, the princesses, Marie Antoinette, uh, had married uh, Louis uh, XVI of France and had been executed. So there was a personal grudge as well as, as an ideological grudge, if you will. And... Uh, uh, the two nations are clashing in the northern part of Italy. Another thing I want to say is that I think our listeners have to be reminded that Italy then is not the Italy of today. Italy was not, until quite a few years later, a unified uh, nation. It was the same physical boot of, Italy, of, of, of Europe that we know, but it was divided into a number of different smaller countries. You had the kingdom of the two Sicilies uh, in the south. You had the papal states, which in those days made up the, the great center of, of, the, of the long boot uh, of, of Italy. Uh, you must remember the popes of those days were not just religious leaders, but they were political leaders. They lived like princes or, or kings and, and had a lot of political power and then had military uh, uh, forces and so on. So what we and think of today is uh, Tuscany and Umbria and a lot of those parts of the, the central Italy. Well, exactly so. Exactly so. And then in the north, you've got a number of smaller areas. You've got the Venetian Republic. You've got the Duchy of Parma. You've got the Republic of Genoa. You've got the Kingdom of Sardinia. You've got uh, a number of, of areas. And Sardinia includes the area in northwestern Italy called uh, the Piedmont. Uh, and is ruled by King Victor uh, Amadeus III. And uh, uh, clearly, uh, this this area has decided it's going to throw its lot in with the French royalists and the Austrians. And so the Piemontese are supporting the, the Austrians in their moves against the uh, eastern border of, of France uh, down along the coast. And, of course, uh, France was not going to put up with this. And as early as 1793 had actually sent an army into northern Italy to, to deal with this. Now, the French uh, were uh, convinced they were just going to go there and, 
and and kick some some Piedmontese and Austrians around, but it didn't work out that well. Uh, for one thing, the French uh, leadership had not been uh, especially uh, motivated. Uh, the French army had not been particularly well supported. Uh, the Austrians of the Piedmontese were perhaps a little bit better competition than they had anticipated. Uh, and the whole thing had become bogged down. And in your uh, very well-read uh, uh, speech that Napoleon gives sometime later, uh, it really sums it up. They, they, did, they didn't have uh, money. They didn't have boots even. They didn't have uh, hardly adequate arms. And it was no wonder that they weren't doing well. But things were definitely about to change. Well, not only weren't they doing well, there was uh, a lot of mutinies happening. There was a lot of uh, lack of discipline in the French troops. So Napoleon had a lot to deal with. And they were also quite a small force, too. I believe that he was greatly outnumbered when he took over the, this army. And uh, But as we know from our reading of Napoleon, he was uh, quite skilled at knowing how to get the most out of a very small force. But the thing I like about that speech, and obviously that speech, whether or not he actually gave that speech is open to a lot of uh, debate, whether or not yes. he wrote it later on in, in exile in St. Helena or not. But there, there is a series of great speeches, great oratory given in Napoleon's career for starting at about this uh, time, which I always enjoy reading. I mean, some of it is building up his forces and motivating them onto greater heights. And in some cases, we've got, I've got a couple of uh, speeches here where he tears them to shreds as well for lack of discipline or not delivering the sorts of results that he was expecting. But definitely, whether he gave these speeches at the time or he wrote them later, he really had a, a way of uh, communicating his pleasure or displeasure that was uh, that, that is always amusing. Well, you're, you, you make a very, very good point, uh, and, and I'm, I'm glad you do. A lot of these speeches... It's, it's, it's hard to say for sure if he gave them at the time. Uh, it's also hard to say for sure, uh, who would have heard them. Uh, now my voice carries very, very well, uh, but I don't know that I could stand in front of a crowd of, of 41,000 soldiers and without a, a, a speaker system of some kind and, and have my voice heard by all but, but the first few, uh, ranks. And, and Napoleon's army was, Right around 41,000 uh, soldiers, and the Piedmontese and the Austrians were around 47,000. The biggest difference being, number one, that they were very, very well equipped, and number two, uh, on the other end of, of Italy, you had, you had the, and along the coast, you had the British Navy in support. So Napoleon was kind of uh, sandwiched. Uh, but whether or not he gave those specific speeches or not, there is no question, by all accounts, that he was inspirational, that either by his actions, as we'll see at Lodi and other places, uh, or by his words, by his writing, uh, clearly he could inspire people. And even if the only people who heard him were the officers and some of the soldiers in the first ranks, that word would have spread and, and the inspirational ability of Napoleon uh, turns out to be one of the deciding features or factors, I think, in the success of the, the uh, army in, in Italy, because it turns out to be extremely successful. 
I mean, when you go and take over a force like that, that hasn't been doing well, doesn't have shoes, doesn't have food, doesn't have good weapons. Well, what was that? I'm, I'm sorry I coughed. I apologize. Oh, it's all right. We've got a loud whack there. I'll try and edit that out. Um, you know, it seems to me that when you take over an army that doesn't have a lot of food, doesn't have a lot of supplies, hasn't been having a lot of success, that you motivate them one of two ways. It's either the, the whip or the, the carrot, right? And obviously Napoleon had a little bit of both. He knew how to have people executed through lack of discipline or if they were uh, raping and pillaging the territories that were going into, and we'll talk a bit about that. But obviously, as you say, he had the ability to get the best out of his troops by building a vision for them of where they could be if they followed his orders and they, they followed him into these new territories. Well, you're absolutely right, and, there, and there's another factor, and of course it, it, it comes out of the one you just mentioned. Nothing succeeds like success, if you'll forgive the ancient cliché, and what Napoleon gives them more than anything else is success. He leads them to victory. He says in, in, in this speech that you read, uh, you know, I will lead you into the most fertile plains on earth and all these things, the rich provinces and cities, etc., will be at your disposal. Uh, will you follow me to glory? And, and they say, yeah, well, whatever, we'll, we'll give it a shot. And sure enough, he, he gives them glory. And, you know, that's, you know, you, you win a few victories, and we'll probably mention, you know, two or three along the line. Uh, and, and all of a sudden, morale goes up, and, and later on he gets into those fertile plains, and all of a sudden they're eating better, and, and they start getting better supplies and so on. And it just builds, and it builds, and it builds, and by the time he's done, he has made a legend for himself, and he's only 26, 27 years old. And with these speeches, obviously, as you say, he couldn't have spoken to the entire troops personally. But I know that you've written a book where you've detailed the orders of the day that were handed out to the army. Is this the sort of thing where the order would be written and then the, 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 the generals and the, the commanders would read it out to the troops? Did, the, did these sorts of speeches appear in the orders of the day? Well, so sometimes that sort of thing would happen. The orders of the day would typically be a bit on the boring side. And the book that I wrote had to do with those starting in 1805, uh, not, not, not as early as this. Uh, but the, the orders of the day and the bulletins that would be produced would have commentary that would be designed to inspire the troops. Uh, commentary reminding them that it was the, the, the old, you know, fossils in Vienna that were trying to destroy their revolution, that, that, that we needed to, to put these people in their place, that sort of thing. That's the kind of thing you would have had. This particular speech, again, that, that, that you and I have been discussing, uh, I don't know that I've seen that, uh, as it written in anything from, from that period or not. That, that speech is, may, may be, uh, a little bit like some folks say, you know, uh, uh, some ancient literature was written. It's a it's a conglomerate of, of, of a variety of things thrown thrown into one. I'm, I'm I'm honestly not real sure, but it makes for great reading. And I do believe, without question, it is the kind of dramatic speech that Napoleon would have given uh, to 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 people. And all you can do is say, well, 
let's look at the results. Let's look and see what happened, both with his relationships with, with his officers, with his men, and ultimately on the field. And whatever he said, whatever he did, it worked. So obviously he arrives in Italy, he's a 26-year-old guy, and he has to make some changes to the army that's been there. Uh, so he brings some of his key people with him, doesn't he? Berthier, Murat, and gets well, rid he, of some of the dead wood. He brings what a lot of folks think may have been his best overall staff. It was certainly a fabulous staff uh, that he was able to pull together, You know, especially considering he was a, a very young general. Uh, Louis Alexandre Berthier was his chief of staff. Uh, this guy's going to be with Napoleon all the way until 1814. Uh, and then the, he's killed uh, or dies mysteriously, I should say, uh, before Waterloo. And, and that may have been a problem for, for Napoleon then. But Berthier is a master chief of staff. Uh, one of the things that Napoleon and I have in common is just awful handwriting. And Berthier was able to decipher the handwriting and to interpret what Napoleon must have meant when he would scratch out these orders and then copy them out and get them out to the commanders quickly and appropriately uh, and, and thus make Napoleon's brilliance understandable uh, to all of the people out there uh, in, in, in the field. And then you mentioned... Uh, uh, Kim Murat, uh, who was now a colonel, uh, an aide de camp. He was a, a uh, the, the one who had gone and got the uh, cannon for the whiff of grape shot, if you'll recall that story. And Murat is without doubt the most dashing, flashy, uh, flamboyant kind of leader you could imagine. Uh, he also will eventually become the greatest cavalry commander of his day. Uh, he will marry Napoleon's sister, Caroline, become a marshal of the empire, become the king of Naples. Unfortunately, toward the end, he will betray Napoleon and then try to get back in his good graces and, and do some things that actually hurts Napoleon's cause desperately in 1815. Uh, and, and, and also by not being at Waterloo, which was Napoleon's fault, uh, Napoleon, you know, didn't do as well as he might have had Murat been there. So Murat, like a lot of these folks, was a mixed blessing, but here he was a, a, a decided, uh, positive addition and, 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 and must have been a fun young man to have along with him. He had, uh, uh, Androsha Junot, who, who, who he had met uh, in school, uh, Auguste Marmont, uh, who would also be with Napoleon pretty loyally until 1814, and then his brother uh, Louis along with him. So he's got a pretty good team, but we also have to remember that he's going to a place that's not exactly empty of generals and of other leaders. And in particular, uh, you, you've got... Uh, uh, two senior generals who were there already, Andre Massena and Charles Augereau. Uh, both of these folks are very respectable generals. Uh, one of my, my dearest friends in, in this field uh, specializes in Massena and, and believes 
that Massena was the finest of, of Napoleon's marshals, military leaders. Uh, I have another dear friend who, who thinks that maybe Marshal Davout uh, deserves that title, and that's just one of those things that we always enjoy chatting about. But Massena is there, and Massena in particular had expected that he might be made the new uh, commanding officer. They were replacing the previous commander, and Massena, not not unreasonably, thought that as a, a senior a commander that he should be. Ajaro probably would have liked to have been, but I think he understood that, that Massena would have been the one. Neither of them, along with a few of the others, junior staff, was very happy to hear that this young whippersnapper, this young upstart, this this kid Napoleon was suddenly going to to get the call, and they 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 figured first of all that this guy was a Napoleon was a political appointment, and let's face it, during the French Revolution period, political appointments in the military were often disastrous because these they would appoint these people who had been you know butchers the week before and didn't know a thing about it. Uh, plus, he was very young, very inexperienced. He had no really military command. They all knew about the 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 whiff of grape shot, and they all appreciated you know his his abilities in that respect. But quite frankly, the word was out that this was a reward for taking Josephine off of uh, Director Paul Barras' hands, and they were not amused to say the least. In fact, they were they were so furious that they decided they were going to to show Napoleon right off the bat what they thought about him. And so the story is, and again, Cameron, sometimes these stories, you don't know exactly if it's totally accurate, if it's exactly the way it happened, but but I wouldn't be a bit surprised. It certainly is the kind of thing that could have happened. Uh, when when the commanding officer comes into the command tent, everybody uh, takes off their hat except the commanding officer, who was allowed by tradition to leave his hat on. And they decided that they were going to leave their hats on. They were senior to this little guy, and they uh, they figured that this would be a good way to send a message to Napoleon, uh, and, and they were going to leave their hats on. Well... The day arrives, Napoleon gets off his horse, <coughs> excuse me, goes into the tent, and the story is they immediately saw the force of personality that this guy had. One look from him, and off came the hats. <laughs> Again, whether or not that's really true, uh, every account I've read about Napoleon was that his his gray eyes could could pierce through you. Uh, that he could enter a, a crowded ballroom, and this goes back to 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 after uh, the the uh, whiff of grape shot when Napoleon was this hero and he was going to all these balls and so on, where he would met Josephine and so on, that he would walk into a crowded ballroom with the music playing and people dancing and talking and drinking, and all eyes would go to him. That that was the kind of of power, that was the kind of magnetism of personality. Gravitas. Had. Gravitas, exactly. And and that is apparently what happened with, with Ajro and Masena, uh, that 
they they were immediately you know swept up by him and and they all ended up getting along fine. I mean, Masena was a, a good, loyal commander uh, for for many, many years. Uh, not so much toward the end. Ajra, they had some problems later, but but uh, uh, they were good commanders. And and certainly in the earlier years, uh, for most of Napoleon's career, these two guys were good, loyal uh, soldiers. And Masena, of course, was was made a marshal of the empire. Actually, I've got some more descriptions of uh, what Napoleon was like in this early period and, and some reports from Massena on uh, their initial impressions. There's a description by uh, Count Jörg von Württemberg that says, Owing to his thinness, his features were almost ugly in their sharpness. His walk was unsteady, his clothes neglected, his appearance produced on the whole an unfavourable impression and was in no way imposing. But in spite of his apparent bodily weakness, he was tough and sinewy, and from under his deep forehead there flashed, despite his sallow face, the eyes of genius, deep-seated, large, and of a greyish-blue colour, and before their glance and the words of authority that issued from his thin, pale lips, all bowed low. And then Messina writes about uh, their first impressions. A moment afterward, he put on his general's hat and seemed to have grown two feet. He questioned us on the position of our divisions, on the spirit and effective forces of each corps, prescribed the course we were to follow, announced that he would hold an inspection on the morrow and on the following day attack the enemy. So he came in and just, you know, obviously took command in what could have been a difficult situation for somebody of less confidence and less uh, gravitas. Well, and that's exactly what he had to do. Had he hesitated, had he acted like he was unsure of his plans, then those guys would have had him for breakfast. And and he, I think, understood that. Uh, I think he acted the way he acted largely because that's just the way he was, but he also knew how to work with people, knew how to get people to, to follow him, and I think he understood that he had to make a very, very good, strong first impression. But more importantly, Cameron, what he understood was he had to give them success. Because if he goes up there and they don't do any better under him than they did under anybody else, then then he's going to be had for breakfast yet. And 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 so he's going to be very careful to see that that doesn't happen. And, and of course, we all, the nice thing about history, we all know how it comes out. Uh, he, he's very, very successful. As you say, talk is cheap. So he goes on and has his first major uh, battle at Montenot, where 6,000 Austrians are routed by 9,000 French. And he basically uh, wipes them out very quickly, and it's a very quick early victory that sets the pace for things, doesn't it? Well, it does. Uh, I think that the, the, you know, first of all, it's always nice militarily if you can wipe out your enemy. Uh, he he does outnumber them uh and 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 manages to to uh, surround them to a certain extent he he goes to the the center of the of the line and uh Masena comes around on the the the, the french left the 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 uh, austrian right flank and and of the 9000 uh or excuse me or of the 6000 austrians uh, almost half, 2,500 of them are casualties. Casualties include uh, killed and, and also, of course, wounded. And and that's a huge percentage. But what really is important about that is not just those numbers. It's that it's a win. It's a decisive win. They followed Napoleon. They went along with this, this young fella. 
who promised them all of these things. And by golly, he delivers. And they say, you know, this guy may not be so bad after all. I mean, even old Messina and these others are thinking, you know, first of all, he uses Messina. He, he, he gives them, you know, important commands, important roles in, 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 in the battle. And, and they're very, very successful. They haven't had any, remember, Cameron, they've had no success. They've been, they've been sitting around there, uh, you know, getting beat up. And, and, and now all of a sudden, they're the ones kicking butt. And it's, it's wonderful. Uh, now there's, and, and it, so the other thing to, that people need to understand, obviously, and we talked about this in the very first episode, is that the way that Napoleon uh, took control of a battle was was very different to the traditional style of warfare. I like the way that uh, one author described it. He says, In the past half century, war in Europe had become a gentleman's profession, comparable to boar hunting or dancing the minuet. The rules were everything. Two armies met and slowly deployed into long, perfectly dressed lines. Each general sought to discover the other's weak point. Then he launched an assault by parallel columns, equidistant from each other, in perfect alignment, in perfect step. After at most a few hours fighting, each withdrew to its camp. There was little bloodshed, battles were usually drawn, and so the tide of war flowed back and forth indecisively. Now obviously when Napoleon came along, for a whole variety of reasons, obviously a lot of his troops had come out of the revolution, they they weren't nobles who had been trained in the fine art of warfare, they had, like Massina and, Massina and Augereau, they had come up through the ranks, they weren't from noble backgrounds, but also Napoleon had learned a lot about you know how how to attack, how to divide and conquer a force. He didn't play by the accepted rules of warfare, did he? Well, that's 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 absolutely right. Uh, Napoleon was like like Caesar in this regard, and and, and Alexander before him, uh, a firm believer in speed of action, of mobility, high mobility, of of going to the weak point quickly, uh, oftentimes going right to the center, dividing an army, and and then turning on on one part of the army with overwhelming force, with just enough going to the the, the other wing to to keep them at bay and and destroying uh, one part. Uh, he was a a good believer and and a good practitioner in the use of light mobile artillery. Uh, which could be devastating, not only in the heat of combat, but particularly when a, an enemy is retreating and, and is very susceptible to uh, more whiffs of grape shot, if you will. So he doesn't play by the, the old-fashioned stolid rules. Uh, in time, he will reorganize the army in ways that make it even greater uh, a, a military uh, threat, and we'll talk about that when we get, you know, into the Austerlitz campaign, probably. Uh, but but he is is clearly the new kid on the block with new ideas and new approaches. And the Austrians, remember, if there was a conservative a conservative army in, in in Europe, it was the Austrians. They they were slow, stolid, unified command. Uh, you know, not particularly uh, initiative. Uh, taking not particularly ambitious uh, and certainly not innovative. That's the word I'm really searching for. They are most definitely not innovative in their approach. But they are well trained and they are well supplied, reasonably well led. Uh, there are more of them, not not by overwhelming numbers overall in the field, but there are more of them. 
and uh, their supply lines are, 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 are better to Austria. So Napoleon has his work cut out for him for all of his innovation and for all of his leadership ability. He would still have to be considered the underdog in all of this. I think it's important to point out a couple of things there. I mean, from my reading, it's obvious that Napoleon wasn't there to dance the dance. He was there to win. Which That's was, right. Which was one major difference between him and, and a lot of uh, his rivals from the other royal families. But the other thing is that Napoleon obviously didn't have a lot of military experience when he turned up in Italy. So we should talk a little bit about where his ideas on strategy came from. You know, these aren't things that he had necessarily thought up himself. He was obviously a devourer of books, as he was called by uh, somebody. And he, he, a lot of his ideas came from the works of others and from book learning, as we'd say, didn't they? Well, he learned a lot of this in, 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 in school. He was, after all, a, a graduate of two military academies and, and, uh, he, he worked with the generals who had their own theories. Uh, one of his, uh, generals in, 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 uh, school had actually Developed some ideas about light mobile artillery, and Napoleon took those ideas and and refined them and made them better. But it's not necessary to be a great general or a great military commander to come up with every idea yourself. The mark of genius, I believe, is to to recognize the ideas of others and be big enough to to use them and incorporate them into your own ideas and see if you can improve upon them. Again, later on, we'll probably say the same thing over again, but when Napoleon reorganizes the, the, the military into the uh, corps d'armée system, this isn't something brand new. This goes back to Julius Caesar, but it, it was a forgotten art. And, and Napoleon... Alexander the Great, even. Well, that, that's right. Alexander. Years earlier. Yeah. That's correct. And... And, and so he takes these ideas and, and makes good use of them. And, and I don't, I don't see that as a weakness or as, oh, well, he's, he's stealing somebody else's ideas. I see that as, as brilliance, being mm. able to take the work of other people, combine it, modernize it, and, and use it to great advantage. And that's exactly what he did. And right. like I say, the, the, the bottom line is is the success of the campaign. One of the uh, great ironies, I think, of where a lot of Napoleon's ideas came from, uh, apart from Alexander the Great and Caesar, a, a lot of ancient writings that he was very familiar with, there was a near contemporary in Frederick the Great, the great emperor of Prussia, who had uh, written uh, a series of what he called secret instructions to the Prussian generals in 1748. Only you know fifty years before Napoleon, and he actually uh, used a lot of Frederick the Great's ideas against the Prussian army over the course of the yes. next few years, which uh, which you've got to love. Well, you know, I'm a great lover of irony, particularly in cases like this. And, and you're exactly right. He he uses advice that they ignored, uh, in essence, uh, against them, and and history. Uh, History is is full of that sort of thing, you know. The and, I, and forgive me if I forget the details, but the guy who came up with with Greek fire, if I recall the story, offered it first to one side, and and and, and that side said, you know, fool you on it, we don't need that newfangled stuff. So he 
takes it to the other side and they use it and the first side gets their their butts burned and and uh you know that that's that's just the way things go the the victory goes to the person willing to take the the best ideas available use them manipulate them to to whatever degree necessary and then put them into effect uh, and in Napoleon's case you put them into effect uh, brilliantly I've got some great stuff here that, um, with your permission, I'd like to read from uh, David Chandler's book, The Campaigns of Napoleon. Well, David Chandler is a dear old friend of mine. He, he, he died not that long ago and after a stroke and everything. And if there's, if there's anyone in the English-speaking uh, world who has done uh, uh, more to promote Napoleon uh, or, or Napoleonic history, I don't know who that would be. Now, David and I didn't always agree on whether... Napoleon was a good guy or a bad guy, but 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 he's one of the the great all-time scholars. So anytime you want to read something by David Chandler, that's fine with me. Great. Well, this is, this is from his uh, you know what I guess a lot of people consider the Bible of uh, Napoleonic campaigns, the campaigns of Napoleon. His his yes, uh, that's that's exactly right. This this book's big enough to sink a battleship. But I like I think <laughs> I think he sums this up quite well. It says Napoleon's general philosophy of war was basically simple and to the point. Once a state of once a state of hostilities existed between France and another power, whether war was formally declared or not was a matter of minor significance. The emperor set out without delay or hesitation to destroy the enemy's field forces by all available means and thus break the national will to resist, or so he hoped. The means to the end were to be the shortest and sharpest methods available. All other considerations would be to considered secondary. There are there are in Europe many good generals, he declared in 1797, but they see too many things at once. I see only one thing, namely the enemy's main body. I try to crush it, confident that secondary matters will then settle themselves. Here lies the kernel, the central theme of Napoleon's concept of warfare, the blitzkrieg attack aimed at the main repository of the enemy's military power, his army. And then he quotes um, from Frederick the Great. Frederick wrote, our wars should be short and lively, for it is not in our interest to protract matters. For a long struggle, little by little, wears down our admirable discipline and only results in the depopulation of our country and the exhaustion of our resources. You will compel the enemy to fight you on your approach. By means of a forced march, you will place yourself in his rear and cut his communications, or, alternatively, you will menace a town whose preservation is vital to him. However, Frederick continues, you will take good care in making this type of manoeuvre to avoid being placed in the same inconvenient situation. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, there, there you have it. It pretty much summarises uh, Napoleon's uh, strategy for the next 15 or 20 years. Well, uh, that, that's exactly right. Now, Napoleon, and, and I, I, always, I hate to use the, the term blitzkrieg because there's all these idiots out there who try to make comparisons between Napoleon and Hitler and of course, Blitzkrieg is, is, is the German for lightning war, but, but it really was a lightning war. You see this in 1805, you see it, uh, and, and other, other times, and, and to a certain extent, you're gonna see it here in 1796 and 7 in, in Italy. Uh, Napoleon understood that politics will follow victory in the field, not necessarily the other way around. And if you can, if you can literally destroy the enemy's ability to carry on a military campaign against you, then everything else will fall into place. Uh, and, but if you allow the politicians time to negotiate, 
or to you know obfuscate and so forth, uh, you may lose in the political halls what you could have quickly gained on the field of battle. And and I think Napoleon was absolutely correct in that, and 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 he certainly used it to great advantage throughout his career. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about his first victory at Montenot. He then almost has a disaster at uh, the village of Dago, but he learned a great lesson from the Battle of Dago, didn't he? Something about being in constant communication. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, he he allowed uh, uh, his his uh, soldiers to 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 become somewhat disparate from each other. Masena's soldiers are sent out to uh, to another area. Quite frankly, they're out there foraging for for food and supplies, and and uh, uh, the enemy uh, soldiers uh, pull a surprise attack uh, on on him. And it was really only in the nick of time that Napoleon was able to to organize a adequate resistance and chase the Austrians away and, and so on. And it did teach Napoleon, if there's anything that is important in running a campaign where the entire army is not always going to be able to be right together at the same time, it is to have a constant system of communication. And and that was a, uh, a, a lesson that he seldom forgot. And when he would forget it, uh, it would sometimes come back to uh, to 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 haunt him. But anyway, after after Dago, he 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 works uh, uh, more wonders. Uh, he he uh, wins uh, uh, in a number of of other uh, relatively small uh, battles, uh, Milimissimo and 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 Seva uh, uh, and, and and others and Mondovi, uh, and uh, you know in time. He is able to to pretty much uh, uh, destroy the the Piemontese at the at the Battle of Mondovi, and and get the the king to sign an armistice. And I think it was April 28th, which essentially gives the Piedmont the control of the Piedmont to the French. It had been more or less under the control of the Austrians, and it takes the Piedmontese army which was the Italian ally, in this case, of Austria, out of the conflict. So now there's no uh, problem with the local army. It's strictly the Austrian army. And that's a big disadvantage for the Austrians, of course, because now they're fighting on what has become hostile territory as opposed to to friendly territory. By the way, uh, this armistice and so forth uh, was... uh, Immediately sent to to uh, France and the directory, the governing body of France uh, approved it. Uh, this was the first indication, I suppose, that Napoleon was prepared to 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 take more than one role. Uh, the military general would not necessarily uh, sign off on what he, what amounted to a treaty, uh, but Napoleon did. You know, he, he he might have called for. You know, political representation to come out from Paris and and cut the deal, but Napoleon cut the deal, and of course the folks in Paris were were quite happy to accept it. This is a relatively small one. We'll see a much bigger one in a little while later. And I think you know we we can learn a lot 
by looking at that armistice and uh, the way that Napoleon treated his victory. I mean, you, you, it's often said you learn a lot about people by the way they treat animals and children, but also their, their character and victory. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, Napoleon uh, made it clear that these, hey, these guys are our friends now. We fought their army. Their army was in the control of the other side. They've been defeated. They've agreed to take our side now, and we're not going to take it out on them. Uh, now, soldiers do not always take that. <clears throat> Excuse me just a moment. <clears throat> soldiers do not always take that benevolent an approach to things. Uh, they like to sort of plunder the countryside, which includes the wine and the food and, and frankly, the women. Uh, and Napoleon said, no, these are our neighbors. After all, it's right next door to France. These are Italians, and Napoleon's heritage was, to some extent, Italian. And we're not going to do this. And if, I, if, if, if our officers catch you guys screwing around, you're going to be punished. And, and he did uh, uh, do that. And he didn't uh, allow them to do looting. He, he, he gave a very fair uh, treaty uh, to the Piedmontese. Uh, the directory in Paris, in all honesty, would have liked to have had more loot. But, you know, you can't argue with success. Uh, you know, Napoleon wins this thing. You better not mess with it. Uh, and, by the way, parenthetically, I should say that uh, we don't want to overplay this. It's not like Napoleon wasn't sending quite a bit of loot back to Paris. Uh, one reason that Napoleon was allowed to to do what he did and to sort of operate independently was that he also understood not only all these things about battle and politics in the field that we've talked about, but he understood the politics back home. And he understood that what these guys wanted was really twofold. Number one, they wanted military victory. They wanted the military threat against France removed. But number two, they wanted bucks. They wanted money. The government of France was was broke. That's I mean, why why wasn't the army of France and Italy being paid? Because there was no money to pay them. Uh, the the government of France, whatever else it was able to do, had never been able to fix the economy of France, and so there was no money. And so Napoleon is sending you know bucket loads of gold and paintings and 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 statues and so forth back. Uh, and this keeps the folks back in Paris, you know, more than content. So I've got a great letter here. Uh, I think this is one of his dispatches to his army. Now let's let's recall that the Battle of Montenot, his first battle, his first attack was April the twelfth. Uh, the the uh, Treaty of Cherasco, where he signs the armistice, is uh, around about April twenty sixth, and he and he issues this command to his army. Soldiers, in 15 days you have won six victories, captured 21 flags, 55 guns, several fortresses, conquered the richest part of Piedmont. You have made 15,000 prisoners. You have killed or wounded nearly 10,000 men. 
Until now you have fought for barren rocks, lacking everything you have accomplished everything. You have won battles without cannon, crossed rivers without bridges, made forced marches without boots, bivouacked without brandy and often without bread. Only the phalanx of the Republic, only the soldiers of liberty could endure the things that you have suffered. But, soldiers, you have really done nothing if there still lies a task before you. As yet, neither Milan nor Turin is yours. Our country has the right to expect great things of you. Will you be worthy of that trust? There are more battles before you, more cities to capture, more rivers to cross. You all burn to carry forward the glory of the French people, to dictate a glorious peace, and to be able, when you return to your villages, to exclaim with pride, I belonged to the conquering army of Italy. Friends, that conquest, I promise, shall be yours. But there is a condition you must swear to observe, to respect the people you are liberating, to repress horrible pillage. All plunderers will be shot without mercy. People of Italy, the French army is here to break your chains. You may greet it with confidence. <laughs> I, I well, well, reading that 200 years later, man. Well, you know, and, 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 and so do I, and, and you read it very well. Uh, but... You know, he, there's a lot of things in there. There's, there's, okay, guys, you've done well, but you've still got more to go. And, and the good news is you are in the most fertile plains that I promised you. But the bad news is you better not take too much of those fertile plains. Uh, and in particular, you better not be raping and pillaging because if you do, you're going to get shot. And, 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 and there was some of that. And, you know, I I think we have to understand that controlling your own army in a time of great victory, particularly an army that has been so beleaguered for so long, is not an easy thing to do. And, and just a, a year or two later, in, in Egypt, Napoleon is going to have a real serious problem with exactly that same issue. Uh, and we'll, we'll talk about that then. And he's not going to be quite as successful uh, then as, as he was uh, here in Italy. But in Italy, he was able to keep the troops under control. Uh, and, you know, part of that might very well be that the Italians and the French are, are ethnically and, and, and socially and so forth very, very, very close. Uh, and, 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 you know, who, who knows what else. But, but, the, but the fact is that it's a serious issue. All armies, all times in history have had to deal with that. Uh, you you have that problem with Henry the uh, Fifth in the, the the campaign in France, uh, you know that ends with Agincourt. He has the same the same problem. You have to worry about looting. You have to worry about raping and so forth. And and if you believe the Shakespeare, I mean, he hangs this fellow for for stealing from a church. So uh, you know this this is a, a problem that that Napoleon recognizes. And again, Napoleon's young. He's inexperienced. You know, it, it would be understandable. He'd like to go out and, and, and get in on, on some of the action, if you'll forgive the insensitive expression of putting it, but that, which is the way the soldiers would have seen it. Uh, but Napoleon is mature enough to recognize the political implications of allowing his army to rape and pillage the, the, the Piemontese would be horrible. Again, and, to... and so we need to recall that he's 26 years of age, as you say. That's exactly. That's a certain level of maturity. I've got some other letters here, too, around this period. This is from April the 24th, a letter of his to the directory. 
He says, you cannot conceive the state that this army is in. It has no bread, no discipline. Our lack of carts, our bad horses, our rapacious commissaries have reduced us to absolute destitution. The life I lead is unbelievable. Worn out with my day's work, I have to sit up all night to administer and to proceed in person everywhere to restore order. Our starving soldiers commit excesses that make one ashamed to be a man. I shall make some terrible examples. I will restore order or cease to command these bandits. And then he goes on and uh, writes on the 26th, All goes well. The pillage has decreased. This first excess of an army that lacked everything is wearing off. The wretched men are excusable. They have reached the promised land and cannot but be at it. Tomorrow some of the men who have rifled a church will be shot. It is a painful thing to have to do and costs me many pangs. Horrors have been committed that make me shudder. Fortunately, the Piemontese army in its retreat behaved even worse. This splendid country will be of great help to us. From Mondovi alone we can raise a million. So he, you know, he has some people shot. Uh, he makes some, um, uh, you know, draws a line in the sand and makes some examples of some of the men. But, uh, you know, he, he tries to curb the behavior as much as he can. And just before we wrap up, because I think, <laughs> yet again, we've nearly run out of time here, David. I've got a, <laughs> a, a, a great letter. We were talking about some of the generals that he uh, had under his command at the time. I've got a great letter here from around about this time that he writes to the directory. I think it worthwhile to give you my opinion of the generals serving with this army. You will see that very few of them are of any use to me. Berthier, ability, energy, courage, character, everything in his favour. Augereau, plenty of character, courage, firmness, energy, is accustomed to war, popular with his men, lucky in the field. Massina, active, tireless, enterprising, grasps the situation and makes up his mind quickly. Surier, Fights like a soldier, dislikes responsibility, firm, has too poor an opinion of his men, an invalid. Desponar, dull, slack, unenterprising, doesn't understand war, is unpopular with his men, doesn't use his head, in other ways a man of high character, intelligence and sound political principles, good for a home <laughs> command. Saray, good, an excellent soldier, not enough education for a general, unlucky. <laughs> Reminds me of, uh, there's a... There's a scene in the godfather where uh <laughs> one of the one of the uh mafia guys who's running las vegas says to michael corleone you think i'm skimming off the top mike michael just looks at him and says you're unlucky <laughs> which comes across like the worst insult you could make you know well i mean the, the napoleon the one of the great stories uh many years later uh napoleon uh, someone is being uh, touted to Napoleon for promotion and, and, and Napoleon's being told all of his, uh, military attributes, leadership qualities and so forth. And Napoleon says, yes, but is he lucky? lucky. Yes, exactly. He, he goes on to write, Abatucci, not fit to command 50 men. Garnier, Murnier, Casabianca, incapable, unfit to command a battalion on such an active and serious campaign. Maqua, a good fellow, no ability, lively. Gautier, all right for a clerical job, has never seen a shot fired. <laughs> and so on. So I love that. Straight to the point. David, I do too. I think we're and going to have to wrap up this episode uh, before we get on to the Battle of Lodi and the Bridge Over Arcol, uh, the Treaty of Campio Formaio, so many great campaigns in, the, in Italy that we need to spend more time on. And, 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 I, and I, I agree with you. I, I, I see we are, are low upon yet another hour. I, I would like to say to our, our, our friends in the listening audience, uh, maybe a little bit of a technical aside here so that they understand this. Uh, when we put this program together, 
we put together what we proposed to be a, a set number of episodes, and we knew exactly what we were going to cover in each episode. But as many of you who were listening will understand, when you get two people who, in the course of a very short period of time, have become quite good friends and who share an interest like this and who have what I, I will humbly suggest is a, a reasonable body of knowledge and an unbounded amount of enthusiasm, the idea of limiting the discussion to the time frames that we had initially anticipated is an idea whose time quickly came and went. So I hope you will all bear with us and enjoy the fact that we we do get into a little bit more of this than we might have anticipated. I hope that it's enjoyable to you, and I can certainly tell you it's very enjoyable to us. Well, yeah, and in David's defense, the notes that I put together for us around uh, the year of 1796, which I predicted we'd be able to cover off in one episode, has now taken up two hours, which we've recorded in a single day, and is going to go into a third, I can tell. So it, uh... it, will, go into, it, it will go into a third, and, and you're very kind to, to blame your notes, but, but I will also admit that uh, I can be long of wind myself sometimes, and, and again, I, I hope that it's worth listening to. Well, it's certainly enjoyable to talk to you, David, yet again. Uh, take care of that throat of yours. I know that you haven't been well lately, and uh, you drink some more of that single malt whiskey that I know that is your preferred medication. Uh, yes, if, if one must have a medication, it must be anywhere between 12 and 21 years old, and that'll work quite fine. Until next time, David Markham, take care, and we will catch up with Napoleon in Episode 6, where we we continue the Italian campaign of 1796. Cheers, David. We will go to Lodi, where he says, for the first time, he realizes that he is somebody special. Network. Listen. Learn. Evolve.